and these are the stories of the heart of the community in the heartland. This series brings to life the oral histories of journalists in North and South Dakota, newspaper legends who devoted their lives to covering their rural communities. By now, a few have passed on, but all of their legacies endure, and their history is forever preserved in the newspapers they leave behind, as well as through these stories. These episodes are sponsored by the North Dakota Newspaper Association and the South Dakota Newspaper Association. Since the 1880s, both have advocated for the public's right to know and for the importance of newspapers in a democracy. With so many of our journalists having experiences with the military, it felt impossible to not do an episode examining their service from World War II to Vietnam. Preserving the memories of World War II veterans especially becomes ever more important as the generation fades away. Former Lennox Independent publisher Verlin Hofer of South Dakota was about 16 years old when the news of Pearl Harbor came over the radio. His family listened all afternoon and tuned in to Franklin Roosevelt's war declaration the next day. Several months after graduating high school in 1943, Hofer received his draft letter. Oh, I was ready to go. And most of my high school friends had gone in uh, just a little bit before I did. And I didn't, I didn't want to hang around any longer. <laughs> so it was a big adventure, you know. Okay. You, you don't contemplate what some of the consequences might be when you're that age, 18 years old, you think you're... I'm in law. Invincible. During the 17-day journey on a ship over to Europe, Hofer helped put out the ship's newsletter. It carried stories of what was happening on the ship and news coming in over the ship's radio. Finally, they arrived in Italy on Christmas Eve. And I remember being on the baggage detail and helping load up trucks and stuff to haul them. Our, our luggage, you know, our bags, and, and uh, I remember it was cold and wet and miserable. And we got in this truck, and some Italian drove the truck through a mountain pass, and I thought for sure we were going to go over the cliff, and we went on to a replacement depot. That was a place where the Replacement troops would be uh, housed while they were assigned to a combat unit. Well, we sat there for three weeks, then they put us back on the ship and took us to Marseille, France. He was assigned to the 14th Armored Division. His military career ended March 23, 1945 in Germany when he was shot by artillery in the legs. He was eventually taken to a hospital in England, where he was hospitalized for three months before returning to the United States on a hospital ship. I don't know. I think it was too, still too dumb and young and dumb to be real frightened. I, uh, apparently I had enough faith to uh, think I was going to Make out all right, which I did. He received the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star for his service. 
He wrote a book called A Wartime Odyssey, the personal story of one teenage GI wounded in battle in World War II, which is available on Amazon. Marilyn Hagerty didn't serve herself during World War II, but it and World War I had a significant impact on her and her family. Well, of course, um, people talked a lot when I was growing up. They talked a lot about World War I mm. because <clears throat> many of the people in our town were veterans of World War I. I had an uncle who was gassed in World War I and was never well after that. And um, so I remember that. My brother Harley ended up in the Air Force during World War II. He was with the National Guard in Pierce, South Dakota, Battery C. And they went off to war right as World War One, World War Two, <laughs> was starting, and uh, they were out. The last message we had from him was in Hawaii, and that was just two days before it was bombed. So my father, I remember him sitting by the radio, just shaking and trembling because. He was worried about Harley and all the boys in Battery C from <clears throat> Pier and Mitchell, South Dakota. And we didn't hear for about two weeks, but the boys were safe. They were in Australia. They had chipped out of Pearl Harbor just before it was bombed. And at the same time, my father was very nervous because um, uh, the Germans were overrunning Denmark, and he wasn't hearing from his family, and uh, he was very nervous about that, of course, so they were very trying times. Anyway, that was Harley. Harley ended up in the Air Force after his service with Battery C, and he was a lieutenant colonel when he retired. He fought over, he flew over Germany during World War II, and um, he was a bombardier on a B-36, I think. And um, my brother Walter ended up in the Air Force, too, and he was a mechanic. Walter was a very good mechanic. He one time built his own car. So he ended up in Germany taking care of planes that went down over there, and he got home safely. She also remembers the influence of the war at the University of South Dakota. When we were sophomores, the men started coming back. We stood in line, watched them in, on the campus, standing in line to sign up for the GI Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. There were rows and rows of people when we were sophomores. So my junior and senior year, there was, you know, a normal college year. And things were sort of, you know, getting back to pre war years. But those years with uh, with the war on and things being rationed, you know, sugar was rationed and shoes were rationed and cigarettes were rationed. And unfortunately, I was one of those who smoked and we'd follow cigarette trucks around trying to find a cigarette. Cigarette smoking was very much in vogue. And once you get started, you're hooked. And so we would follow trucks around town to see what store they went to and run in and try to buy 
cigarettes and vermilion, but the vermilion merchants knew it. And so they saved them for their people. That was college. Moving on to Korea, Wayne Lyford found himself serving as a war correspondent for the Army in the early 1950s. Well, I was, uh, I was uh, inducted into the Army in the middle of that thing, and that was in 1950. And, and uh, the odd thing was that when I was, when I, I was drafted in, into the Army when I was in, right after high school, but I failed my physical. But this time I passed. So, uh, so I had a two year uh, in the Army, two years in the Army, and uh, one of the things that happened to me in the Army, in the military, was I was shipped overseas to Korea. And uh, fighting at that time, that would be been in 1950, 1950 uh, at that time uh, was not as, uh, as bad as it used to be, but anyway, they shipped me overseas, and I, this is just for a two-year period that I was inducted for. And I was shipped overseas, uh, went to Japan, and then shipped into Seoul, Korea. And uh, and then uh, they sent me up to the front lines, and uh, they were the whole group that I was with, of course, and. Uh, they started assigning us where we should, should go. And I sat there for two days in the tent waiting for my assignment. And uh, that, that day, uh, uh, one of the uh, military guys came in and said, the colonel wants to see you. So I went in to report to the colonel and the colonel says, I think I found a home for you. I'm going to assign you as a war correspondent. I read your records, and you got a college education, so that's what you're going to be doing. So I was assigned to this job. I had to write so many stories. These were hometown news stories. I'd interview hometown soldiers, send it, and we'd send it to the hometown newspaper. And I do have to do two or three of those a day. And I was on my own pretty much, except once in a while they had assigned me to something that, that uh, got into the Stars and Stripes or into the, regional, or the, into the regional papers. On the other side of the world, Bob Lind also enlisted in the Army during the Korean War. I was in my second year at school at Minnesota. And like I say, I'm not proud of this fact, but I wasn't doing, I was getting lousy grades and, you know, I really wasn't into it. And, uh, and um, so then the Korean War came along and of course those days there was a draft. And, and so with my, <clears throat> if I'd been getting some decent grades, I probably could have gotten the exemption, but I was, getting, I, I was getting bad grades. And so it became apparent that I was in line to get drafted. So I will say, I outsmarted the military. Instead of allowing myself to be drafted for two years, I enlisted for three. <laughs> so, so I enlisted in the Army for three years. And uh, 
as I say, the Korean War was on, but fortunately for me, um, while I was training in the U.S., well, I, yeah, that, of course, up, while the war was on, everybody virtually was going to Korea. But, when, but while I was training, the war ended, so they quit shipping guys, and they wound up sending me over to Germany. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I never, I never was in combat, and, and uh, so that was that. Served out. I was in Germany for a little less than two years, like, and then, and came home. Like I say, I went back to Minnesota. I was in the uh, outfit that's no longer. That's called it's Army Security Agency. It's an intelligence, intelligence, and uh, I can't go. <laughs> can't go into details about it, but uh, we, we kept our eyes on the bad guys, which at that time was Russia. The Cold War was on, so there was always a threat of war between at that time with Ru Russia and the U.S. And, and so uh, intelligence was just kind of keeping an eye on them, and I was I was not a spy. They didn't they didn't drop me behind lines <laughs> like that, but but we just. We had ways to, ways to keep an eye on them through the Army Security Agency, which came under the National Security Agency. But the, the Army Security Agency is long gone now. As a little boy who grew up listening to the news and following World War II, it was amazing for Lind to find himself briefly living in Germany. Incredible, because I, as, as I said, I got I was. I, I started as a kid. I was following the war, and and learning the geography of finding out where these places were. And so then actually being Germany and see, I was over. The war ended in '45, and I got to Germany in in '53. It was like what eight years, you know, after the war. Eight years earlier, we'd been fighting these people and dropping bombs, and they were shooting at us. Now I'm living right over there in a camp, living among them and with them and in their towns. Uh, and I remember um, one time uh, I, uh, a buddy and I went on a weekend pass. We went up to, to Cologne, Germany. Uh, just wanted to see it. And I still remember we, we stayed in a, in, a, in a hotel and the street we were on was just gorgeous. In fact, I, I, I just remember going into one store. It sold um, glassware, you know, goblets. Uh, what's it called? I don't know what you call it. Just row after row, gorgeous stuff. When I was just thinking, oh, my mother would just love this place, you know. And that whole street was just gorgeous. If you, you go one block over, either way, and it was rubble, and they had taken one street and they had fixed up the stores and everything on it, but on the one, one block each way, it was just still rubble, bombed out buildings, nobody there. Well, obviously the Allies had bombed it, and, they, and eight years later, it still was that way, you know? And that just, just kind of hit me. Uh, and, I, and I thought about, you know, the, at the Army base I was on, they, they would hire the Germans to work for me, you know? To clean and you know, you know, work in the kitchen in the mess mess hall. I don't know. They'd, you know, they'd hire them and, and men, and I and I never knew for sure. Probably eight years earlier, they'd been 
these guys might have been in the army shooting at American troops, you know. Now they're, now we're hiring them and they're, they're working for us, you know. And I never had any hassles. I never, you know, never got Germans. I, had, I didn't have much to do. I didn't speak German and I learned as, to say Auf Wiedersehen and <laughs> Guten Morgen. <laughs> say a few words in German, but I never really mixed with them a whole lot. I never had any troubles, but it was, it was kind of um, sobering to think that, you know, eight years earlier that this was enemy country and we were enemies and, and now here we are. It was 1956 and 57 when Dick Lee entered the military, an experience that ultimately left him heartbroken at the time, but may have saved his life. In my era, you didn't stay at home because everybody was either drafted or, as I did, I was in Air Force ROTC, and so I was commissioned as a lieutenant. At the same time, I got my journalism degree and I went home, ran the newspaper that summer, uh, and then in September uh, I went on active duty with the Air Force, and I got my wish to fly. And so I went to flight school. I spent a year and a half in flight school. I flew T-34s, which is a small trainer, and T-28s, which is a large trainer, and T-33s, which is a jet trainer and about a month from getting my wings from graduating uh, the Air Force said we don't want you to fly you're very dangerous in formation flying in jets and so uh, they asked me to leave not actually asked me to leave I washed out but then there's a context there too because Korea, the war had finished and nobody knew that Vietnam was coming. It was in 56 and 57 and um, Vietnam was off, not even on the horizon. And so the Air Force felt after Korea that it had plenty of pilots and so 50% of my class washed out, and I was the last one. Which, as I look back, I was heartbroken at the time because I loved flying jets. I saw myself as a fighter pilot. Um, I was excited by it. And um, But when I sat down with my table mate, one table mate was killed. The other table mate uh, flew in Vietnam and probably somewhere between a third and a half of the people that I flew with were killed. Truman Ness also spent two years in the Army, serving between 1958 and 1960. I had basic training in uh, Colorado. Uh, Fort Carson in Bay, Colorado Springs. And the rest of the time I uh, was in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. At, uh, I had a lot in Oklahoma. And I spent uh, uh, two months at the Army uh, Information School in uh, uh, a suburb of New York City. 
that when I was a clerk typist tenant for a while. Uh, and mostly that's what I did. Later on, uh, uh, I was uh, the information specialist from the last, for the last year or so. Uh, and part of the time I uh, did uh, uh, temporary uh, sergeant in charge of the office for at, uh, a couple of times when, when uh, a person was transferred out or so. Uh, so I, I was doing some of the information training in, that, uh, in the school. Uh, one of the sergeants who had been supposed to get out of the uh, out of service uh, two days after the Pearl Harbor, and so he kept him. They kept, of course, every all, all the military people in, and uh, he liked to uh, come uh, to our uh, barracks and and. Uh, let us know that uh, there's something going on, some Panama or someplace. You guys are going to be going to work. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it was a, a pretty easy uh, army life. Bill Marcial experienced the military in an entirely different way during his time in the Army Reserve. Well, it, the, the Army business was, you know, when you were on active duty, I went into the medical corps and became a medic. And then when I came out, I had five and a half years of, of reserve time in the National Guard. So. I joined the National Guard unit in Minneapolis and then came to Fargo and uh, when we moved up here and joined the, the band unit and I played in the band for like four years. The saxophone, alto saxophone. But in those days, the uh, the Army, the National Guard band during summer camp would go to all these little small towns and, and play for their parades and all. And because I'd been in the quartermaster corps in the Army, I had a, a commercial truck driving life, driver's license so mm -hmm. I could drive 18 wheelers and all that stuff. So we'd go out and play in these small towns and march in the parades, and then they'd get a keg of beer and put that in the bus and drive home, and I had to drive because I was the only guy with a license to drive the bus. I missed out on a lot of fun there, but it was okay. Moving on to the Vietnam years, Mike Jacobs remembers watching the draft lottery in Grand Forks in 1969. Ah, man, that was an awful night. Um, so there were... I don't know, 30, 50, I mean, a crowd. Um, and the Riviera was a special place. Um, <laughs> they, you know, back in those days, we had what was called the food and liquor divorcement law. You couldn't serve, you couldn't serve alcohol in restaurants. You could bring the food from the restaurant into the bar, but you couldn't take the alcohol into the... And so the Riviera had a had two entrances. One was the restaurant and one was the bar. And I, I don't remember exactly how it was configured, but the, the wall separating them had a row of tables in the bar so that they could bring the meals into the bar and serve them restaurant style, even though you weren't in the restaurant. So uh, there are these people sitting there uh, having dinner. And then there are the 30 or 50 of us uh, 
probably closer to 30 than 50, but certainly a crowd watching, and we didn't all have TVs in our rooms in those days, watching, watching this, this thing going on. So you had these, these sort of uh, individuals pursuing their own lives, having dinner with their wives or their business buddies or whatever was going on up there. That was, that was wholly apart from this drama that was going on in each of our lives. Um, and so um, um, one of my friends was number 10. And uh, of course my birthday's late in the year. So uh, actually they, 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 drew by, they drew by the number. So, you know, when they drew number 10, then they would reach in and draw whatever, the, whatever it was. So I was, I was 110. My birthday was number 110. So it was, uh, it, it, you know, you're familiar with Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery. I think I have the author's name right. Yeah, so I, it was like that. That's what it was like. It was weird. I mean, it's still weird, even all these years later. That would have been in what, 1969, 70, around then? Um, yeah, so it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was existentially weird. That's what it was. Because, you know, I mean, our lives were on the line. You know? um, uh, one day on campus, it was in the wintertime. Well, it was actually probably March because uh, it was icy and it had thawed and frozen. And, and uh, I was coming across campus uh, on my way probably to Merrifield Hall where the journalism department was, also philosophy. And I came around uh, Montgomery Hall and there was a, a woman I knew who was crying. And her boyfriend had, had been killed in Vietnam and she had, she had just learned. So that's the name I go look at on the, on the uh, memorial in Washington. For more on the Vietnam War, check out our episode 8, where Richard Peterson describes his time printing propaganda. Today they're known as the, among the most significant figures in North Dakota and South Dakota journalism, but each had their own role in the nation's military history as well, and gained experiences that helped shape their future lives and careers. For the Dakota Journalist Podcast, I'm Terry Finneman, with sound editing by Savannah Wakefield. And these are the stories of the heart of the community in the heartland. Mm-hmm.